The Complete Norse Mythology, adapted by Kevin Crossley Holland, music by Mats Vent, read by Tom Harris. Part 6 Hindla's Poem The giantess Hindla was asleep. She was growling in her gloomy cave, and it wasn't a pleasant sound. Freya and her boar stood in the cave's mouth, listening. Then Freya called out, Hindla, my friend! Hindla, my sister! Wake up! Come out of your hole in the hill! The growling gave way to a sound like a bitch howling at the moon. The giantess was yawning. It's dark in there, and it's getting dark out here, Freya called. And we must go to Valhalla together. We must win Odin's favor. He's always open-handed with his followers. He gave a helmet and a coat of mail to Hermod, and he gave a sword to Sigmund. Now there was only silence within. Hindla was listening. To some he gives gold, to others glory in battle, said Freya. To many he gives wisdom, and to many word skill. Fair winds to the sailor, craft to the poet, and a start heart to many a hero. Freya paused. I'll pay court to Thor as well, she called out, and I'll ask him always to look kindly on you and support you, although he has little love for giant women. A large unwholesome face loomed out of the gloom, and Hindla slouched out of the cave. She was dressed in something like sacking. Bring one of your wolves from its lair, said Freya, and let him and my boar run in harness. My boar cannot carry us both or hurry on the way to Asgard. He's a marvel, and I don't want to ride him into the ground. Hindla looked at the goddess with beady eyes. Nonsense, she said. Pretense and promises. You can't even look me straight in the eye. Well, I'll tell you straight, that's no boar. That's your lover, young Otter, the son of Einstein. You're riding your lover on the road to Valhalla. And you, said Freya, are full of wild ideas. My lover beneath me on the road to Valhalla. This is my battle boar, Hildesvini. His golden bristles show him the way in the dark. He was made by master smiths, the dwarves Dine and Nabi. Hindla said nothing. She just sniffed and started to back away into the cave. Freya would not give up and would not go away. She wrangled, she wheedled and cajoled, she threatened, she made promises, and in the end she won the giant's half-hearted agreement that they should journey to Asgard together. Little choice, said the giantess, if I want any peace. As Freya had suggested, the giantess rode a wolf, and the goddess mounted her boar. The two animals ran in harness, and at last the travelers reached the gates of Valhalla. They reined in besides Valgrind, the outer gate, and the deer, Hadron, who was grazing there, water streaming from his horns, bounded away to safety. Freya and Hindla dismounted and walked down to the banks of the torrent Thund. What is talk of the ancestry of two heroes? Freya said. Otter the Young and Angantir, two men fathered by gods. Hindla smiled the half-smile of one who knows the truth always comes out. Otter raised an altar to me, cried the goddess. 
He built up the stones, and now they have turned to glass. He reddened the altar again and again with the blood of oxen. Otter always put his faith in goddesses. Freya took a step towards the giantess. Now tell me the names of the ancients and their kindred. Which men are Skjoldungs, which are the Skilfings, Othlings, and Ulflings? Who are the firstborn, and who are the highborn, the most noble men in Midgard? Hindla looked at Freya, then she looked at the boar and took a deep breath. You, Otter, she said, are the son of Einstein, and he was the son of Alf the Old. Alf sprang of Ulf, Ulf of Safari, and Safari's father was Svan the Red. The boar had pricked up his ears and was listening carefully. Your mother, said the giantess, adored with gleaming gold bracelets, was the priestess Ladis. Her father was Frodi, and her mother Fjot. Her lineage was peerless. Fjot's mother was Hildegun, who was the daughter of Svava and Sakonum. They're all your kinsmen, Otter, you fool. It's a lot to remember. Do you want to hear yet more? The boar was listening. So was Freya. Hildegund's husband was Kettle, the giantess resumed. So he was your mother's grandfather on her mother's side. Frodi came before Kari, and Holf sprang of Hild. Nana, the daughter of Nokvi, came next, and her son married your father's sister. That lineage is long, and even longer, and they're all your kinsmen, Ottar, you fool. Isulf and Osulf, the sons of Olmod, whose wife was Skurhold, the daughter of Skekil. They should be counted among the noblest of heroes, and they're all your kinsmen, Otter, you fool. Then, said the giantess, there are the twelve berserks, Hervard and Hjorvard, Hrani and Angantyr, Pui and Brahmi, Bari and Reifnir, Tind and Tyrfing, and the two Haddings. These were the sons of Arngrim and Aphura, born long ago in the island of Bulmzo. Howling and foaming in frenzy, they left a trail of terror and leaped like wildfire over land and water. And they're all your kinsmen, Otter, you fool. The giantess narrowed her eyes and raised a horny finger. Long, long ago... All the sons of Jormenrek were given to the gods in sacrifice. Now Jormenrek was one of Sigurd's kinsmen. Mark my words carefully. Sigurd, who could stand against all, slayer of the dragon Fafnir. The hero Sigurd was Volsung's grandson, and his father was Hjordis of the Hraudungs. Her father was Elimi of the Othlings. And they're all your kinsmen, Ottar, you fool. The sons of Gyuki and Grimhild were Gunnar and Hogni, and his daughter was their sister Gudrun, Sigurd's wife. The third son, Gothorm, was not fathered by Gyuki. And they're all your kinsmen, Otter, you fool. Hvedna's father was Hjorvard, and Haki was the best of his sons. Harald Wartooth was the son of Aud, and her husband, Hrorek, the ring-giver. And the profound was Ivar's daughter. But Rathbard was the father of her son Randvir, 
And they're all your kinsmen, Otter, you fool. Freya looked at the giantess in triumph. Otter and Angantyr have made a wager, she said. They have staked their whole inheritance on the matter of their lineage. Now give my boar the memory beer, so that when Otter and Angantyr meet three days hence, he'll remember your fine recital, every word of it. We must protect Einstein's well-earned wealth, his family heirlooms, so that the young hero can enjoy them. The giantess opened her rotting, cavernous mouth and yawned. Go away, she said. I want to sleep again. I'm not doing you any more favors. She gave Freya a withering look. My noble goddess, she said, you leap around at night like Hadron cavorting with a herd of goats. Freya slowly raised her arms. I will girdle you with flame so you cannot leave this place without catching fire. Hindla laughed in contempt. You've gone running to Ord, she said, who always loved you, and many mother has wormed his way under your apron. My noble goddess, you leap around at night like hatred cavorting with a herd of goats. There was fire in Asgard, dancing in the air. A hand of flame, a quivering halo surrounded the giantess. Her limbs tightened. She pressed her arms against her side. Flames around me, cried the giantess. The earth is on fire, and I must pay the full price or forfeit my life. Hindla flinched as the girdle began to tighten. Otter's drought of memory beer, she called. Take it! It's full of venom. It will bring him to an evil end. Stuff, said Freya. Nonsense. It is you who are full of bitterness and rancor. Your threats will do no harm, though. The goddess was smiling in douce. She trailed her fingers down the boar's back. Otter will drink nothing but the best if I get my way with the gods. Otter will prosper Thor's Duel with Hrungnir Odin, god of gods, was not content with being able to see everything that happened in the Nine Worlds. He was not content even with being able to understand all that he saw. His blood raced, and he longed to test life's winds and tides for himself. While Thor was away fighting trolls and troll women and their wolf children in iron wood, Odin bridled at his own lack of action. He became so restless that he donned his golden helmet and leapt onto Slepnir, hungry for some happening. Slepnir vaulted the torrent Thund beside Valhalla and then the old river that snaked through a canyon. He spring-heeled over the broad, gleaming river and the river teeming with spears, and his eight hooves clattered as he galloped over Scree. For hour after hour, Odin rode towards Jotunheim, across utterly dreary country, at first flat and tussocky and pocked with small deserted lakes, then flat and stony, a sea of slabs where nothing lived and nothing grew. At last, where the land began to swell and in some places to smoke, leavened by fires far below the earth's crust, Odin came to the hall of Hrungnir, the strongest of all the giants. Who are you? demanded Hrungnir. The raider pulled his blue cloak 
close around him, tilted his wide-brimmed hat forward, and said nothing. I've been watching. I saw you coming, your gold helmet flashing under the sun. You seemed to be riding as much through the air as on the ground. Rungnir rubbed his enormous nose. That's an uncommonly fine horse you've got there. Better than any in Jotunheim, retorted Odin. That's for sure. That's what you think, replied the giant. That's what I know, said Odin. What do you know of Jotunheim, little man, said Hrungnir, his temper rising. Don't be so certain. I'm certain enough to wager my head on it. You fool, bellowed Hrungnir. Have you never heard of Goldmane? Who? said Odin. My horse, shouted Hrungnir. Goldmane! Fast as your horse may be, Goldmane will gallop him into the ground. Gab, spat Odin. Old Gab. Goldmane, boomed Hrungnir, and his voice bounced back off the mountain wall. My head, Hrungnir, called Odin, spurring Sleipnir into a gallop. Come and collect it! By the time Hrungnir had sprung on to Goldmane, the helmeted one was already on the other side of the smoking hill. The god and the giant raced across the flatlands, and neither gained ground on the other. They raced into the uplands, and Hrungnir had no thought for anything but the chase. They crossed the nineteen rivers, and before the thick-bearded giant had taken stock of where he was, he found himself inside the walls of Asgard. Then at last he realized who his visitor had been. Odin was waiting for Hrungnir beside Valgrind, the outer gate of Valhalla. That's an uncommonly fine horse you've got there, he said. Hrungnir glared at Odin, angry but unable now to do anything about it. You must be thirsty after such exertion, he said. Let Goldmane drink from the torrent Thund, and you, Hrungnir, come and drink in Valhalla. Odin led the way in under the roof of shields and spears, and his wolves, Freki and Giri, at once got up and leapt towards him. Ranks of warriors filled the benches, feasting and drinking after the day's slaughter, and when they saw the giant, they began to shout. It was an awesome noise, as if the sea itself were caught in the mighty hall and waves were breaking on a strand of stones. The father of battle raised one hand, and as the clamor began to die down, he called out, Hrungnir comes unarmed! He comes in peace! Let him drink and leave in peace! How can I drink, said Hrungnir, without a horn in my hands? Then the Valkyries, axe time and raging, brought out the two massive horns from which Thor was used to drink. Both were brimming with ale. Drink, said Odin. Test your thirst against our finest trenchermen. All the company in Valhalla watched as Hrungnir tossed off one horn without taking a breath, and then did the same with the other. Such a tide of ale that even Thor might have had trouble with it. It was not long before the giant began to feel the effects. I will, he shouted suddenly. Odin looked at Hrungnir and his one eye glittered. Surely not, he murmured. 
I will, the giant shouted again. He waved his arms and thrusting his head forward glared at Odin. I'll pick up this piffling hall and carry it home to Jotunheim. The warriors sitting at the benches roared with laughter. Rungnir swung around to face them. He meant to take steps toward them, but his balance was wrong and he reeled sideways. I'm gonna shink Asgard into the she, he bellowed. Odin folded his arms. His mask-like face hid his thoughts. After a while, he asked rather casually, Then what is to become of us? You, shouted Rungnir. I'm gonna kill you, you gods and warriors. Smash you! The giant brought his fist down on the trestle table. Its end leaped up and the table danced and fell flat on its face. There was not so much noise in the hall then. Everyone was watching Hrungnir. All except you two, said the giant, pointing at Freya and Sif, fairest of the goddesses. I'll take you back with me. I can find a use for you. Odin nodded, and Freya sidled forward. As she moved, all the jewels she was wearing flashed and glimmered, and Hrungnir tried to rub the stars out of his eyes. Drink again, said Freya. She poured a lot more ale into one of the horns. Is Jet all the ale in this hall? demanded the giant. I'll drink every drop of ale in Ashgard. But although the giant drank more and more, he did not fall into a stupor as Freya had planned. He simply assaulted the company with a stream of boasts. The gods and warriors soon became tired of them, and Odin sent a messenger to find Thor in Ironwood and ask him to return to Asgard at once. It was not at all long before Thor burst into the hall swinging his hammer. What's this? he shouted. What next? seemed him more angry, even when Loki had cut off Sif's hair. What next when sly devils of giants can hope to drink in Valhalla? Rungnir looked at Thor blearily and hiccuped. Who says you can drink here? demanded Thor. And why is Freya waiting on you? Is this a feast in honor of the giants? The giant waved an arm in the direction of Odin. His shave conjucti, burbled. Ojin, he invited me in. Easier to get in than out, said Thor, tightening his hold on his hammer and raising it again. If you kill me unarmed, said the giant, it won't add much to your fame, except foul play. Drunk as he was, he well understood he still had to escape from Valhalla unscathed, and he knew too what would touch Thor most closely. It would be a better test, he began. A much better test of your bravery. What? said Thor. If you dared fight me. Dared? repeated Thor between his teeth. I challenge you to meet me on the borders of Jotunheim and Ashgard. We'll fight at Griotengard, the stone fence house. Thor looked at the giant and knew that he was in earnest. What a great fool I am to have left my hone and shield at home, said Hrungnir. But if I had my weapons, we would settle the matter here and now. 
But if you mean to kill me unarmed, you're a coward. No one had dared challenge Thor to a duel before, and the Thunder God was eager to accept. You can count on it, he told the giant. I do not break faith. Do not break faith with me. Then Hrungnir barged out of Valhalla without a backward look. He heaved himself onto Goldmane's back and galloped away to Jotunheim as fast as he could. When the giants heard about Hrungnir's journey to Valhalla and his forthcoming duel with Thor, they thought he had won great honor. You have won the first part of a famous victory. But for all that, the giants were uneasy and anxious. They knew that if Hrungnir lost the duel and was killed, that would be a bad hour for Jotunheim. If you do not win, they said, what can we expect? You're the strongest of us all. At Gordiotinagarder, there was a river with a bed of clay. Let us dredge it, said the giants. Let us mow the man so vast that Thor will shake at the sight of him. Then the giants worked night and day and pulled up the clay and made a mountain of a man. He was nine leagues high and measured three leagues across the chest from armpit to armpit. He may be so tall that the clouds gather round his head, said the giants, but he is nothing but clay. What are we going to do about his heart? The giants were quite unable to find a heart anything like large enough. In the end, they killed a mare and put her heart into his body. Its pump was enough to give the clay life, but rather too unsteady to inspire much confidence. They called this clay giant Mistcalf and told him to wait by Griotanagarda. On the appointed day, Hrungnir headed for the stone fence house, and unlike Mistcalf, his heart gave others heart. It was made of unyielding stone, sharp-edged and three-cornered. Hrungnir's head was made of stone, too, and so was the great shield he held in front of him as he waited for Thor. In his other hand, he grasped a huge hone. He shouldered it and was ready to hurl it. Hrungnir looked very nasty and very dangerous. Then Thor, the son of Earth, angrily sprang into his chariot, and Thialfi leapt in beside him. It rocked beneath them. The charioteer bawled, and at once his two goats strained at their harnesses. The chariot rattled out from Thrudvang. The moon's path quivered and echoed. Lightning flared and flashed, and men on Middle-earth thought the world itself was about to catch fire. Then hail lashed the ground. It smashed frail stooks and flattened fields of grass, and men quailed within their walls. Headlands were shaken by storms that gullies and rifts and gashes and chasmed opened underfoot, and rocks and boulders cascaded into the curdling sea. They rolled into Jotunheim, towards Griotenegarder. Then Thialfi leapt out of the chariot and ran ahead of it until we could see Hrungnir and Mistcalf. They stood side by side, and Mistcalf's heart thumped inside him. Thor can see you, shouted Thialfi. Can you hear me? Thor can see you with your shield raised before you. Thialfi cupped his hands to his mouth. Can you hear me, Hrungnir? Put it on the ground. Stand by your shield. Thor will come at you from below. Then Hrungnir laid his stone shield on the ground and stood on it. He grasped his hone with both hands. The moment he saw Hrungnir standing at the stone fence house, Thor brandished his hammer and hurled it at him. The giant was assaulted by blinding, forked flashes and claps of thunder. 
Hrungnir saw the hammer flying towards him. He drew back his hone and aimed it straight at Mjolnir. The hammer and the hone met in midair with a dazzling flash, followed by a crack that was heard through the nine worlds. The hone was smashed into hundreds of fragments. The shrapnel flew in every direction. One piece flew to Midgard and splintered again as it crashed into the ground, and every bit is a whetstone quarry. Another piece whistled through the air and lodged in Thor's head. The strongest of all the gods was badly wounded. He fell out of his chariot and his blood streamed over the earth. But Thor's hammer found its target. Despite the hone, Mjolnir still struck Hrungnir in his forehead and crushed his skull. The giant tottered and fell. One of his massive legs pinned Thor down by the neck. When Mistcalf saw Thor, he was terrified. He sprang a leak and peed uncontrollably. Then Thialfi swung his axe and attacked Mistcalf, the giant with feet of clay. Thialfi hacked at his legs and Mistcalf did not have enough strength in his body to fight back. He lurched and toppled backwards and his fall shook Jotunheim. Every giant heard him fall. They knew what had happened at Stonefence House. My head, growled Thor. Thialfi inspected the piece of whetstone stuck in Thor's head. It's in better shape than Hrungnir's head, said Thialfi. He seized the giant's leg and tried to lift it and release Thor. But for Thialfi, it was like trying to lift the trunk of a tree. He was unable to move it an inch. Get help, said Thor. Thialfi put his fleetness of foot to good use. It was not long at all before many of the gods hurried out of Asgard and came to Gryotjengarder, rejoicing at Thor's great victory and anxious to release him. One by one, the strongest of the gods tried to lift the giant's leg, but none of them, not even Odin himself, was unable to do anything about it. The last to reach stone fence was Magni, the son of Thor and the giantess Yarnsaxa. He was three years old. When he saw how the giants were unable to release his father, he said, Now let me try! Magni stooped, grasped Hrungnir by the heel, and swung the giant's foot away from his father's neck. All the giants cried out in wonder, and Thor quickly got onto his feet. It's a pity I didn't come sooner, said Magni. If I had met this giant, I'd have struck him dead with my bare fist. If you go on as you've begun, said Thor warmly, clamping an iron-gloved hand onto his son's shoulder, you'll become quite strong. My mother is iron cutlass, Magni said, and I am the son of thunder. What's more, said Thor, I'm going to give you gold mead. Take Rungnir's horse as a reward. No, said Odin sharply. You shouldn't give such an uncommonly fine horse to the son of a giantess instead of to your own father. Thor took no notice. He clapped his hands to his banging head and rode back to Asgard, followed by the Aesir. Only Odin complained. The other gods gave thanks that good had prevailed over evil and that they seemed quite safe again, as safe as they had ever been. When Thor got to Thrudvang, he walked into his own hall, Bill Skirnir, the whetstone was still stuck in his head. So he sent to Midgard for the Sibyl Grohl, the wife of Ardvandl the Brave. The wise woman hurried up over Bifrost, and all the night she chanted magic words over Thor, charms and spells known only to her. As she sang, the hone began to work loose, and the hammering in Thor's head began to fade. 
and it seemed less like pain than the memory of pain. Thor was so thankful he wanted to make Groa happy. I have a surprise for you, he said. Nothing can surprise me, said Groa. This will, said Thor. Not long ago I was in the north, and I met your husband, Alvaldir the Brave. Groa stiffened, and then she began to shake her head sadly. You may think he's dead, said Thor, but I brought him out of Jotunheim. I waded across the streams of Venon, Elevagar, carrying him in a basket strapped onto my back. Stuff, said Groa roughly. Not because she wanted to disbelieve Thor, but because she did not dare to believe him. Do you need proof? asked Thor. Yes, said Groa. All night you've sung charms over my head, said Thor, and it is almost morning. Come with me. The Thunder God led the way out of Bill Skirnir into the silent courtyard. Look, said Thor, pointing into the sky. Have you ever seen that star? Gro frowned and shook her head. Thor smiled faintly. One of Orvandil's toes stuck out of the basket and froze, so I broke it off and hurled it into heaven. Now and always, that star will be known as Orvandil's toe. Gro's heart was pounding. Her eyes shone with tears of joy. Now are you satisfied? said Thor. And I'll tell you one thing more. It won't be long at all now before your husband gets home. Gro felt as if nothing else in the world had ever mattered, and she felt as if there were no way in which she could properly thank Thor. Only finish your charms and spells, said Thor. Then I too will be happy. Gro looked at Thor and gaped. The charms, said Thor. The sibyl's head and heart whirled, and her blood raced around her body. She was so excited that she could not recall a single charm. Think, woman, said Thor fretfully. Gro buried her face in her hands, but it was no good. Think, woman, think, roared Thor. His eyes blazed and his red beard bristled. But Gro was only able to think of her husband, Arvandil's homecoming, and of a shining star. Thor sent her packing with a bellow of fury, and that is why the whetstone remained in Thor's head. Odin and Billing's Daughter A creaking bow, cried the High One, a burning flame, a yawning wolf, a croaking raven. A grunting wild boar. A tree with shallow roots. Mounting waves. A boiling kettle. A flying arrow. Tide on the ebb. New ice. A coiled snake. A bride's pillow talk. A sword with a hairline. A playful bear. The sons of a king. An ailing calf, a stubborn thrall, a witch's flattery, a fresh corpse, a chance encounter with your brother's murderer, a half-gutted house, a racehorse. If he lames one leg, he will be useless. No man would be such a fool as to trust these things. The High One cried, 
A man should not trust a woman's word, and he should never rely on her promises. The hearts of women were turned on a whirling wheel and imbued with caprice. To love a fickle woman is like this. Setting out over ice with a two-year-old colt, unshod, restive, and unbroken. Or sailing a ship without a rudder in a storm. Or hunting reindeer over slippery rocks with a pulled hamstring. I will speak clearly, cried the High One, for I know them both. Men deceive women. The fairer our words, the falser our thoughts. We undermine their common sense. A man who longs for a woman's love mouths soft words and brings gifts and praises her beauty. Sophistry works wonders. Let no man mock another because of his love. Time and again the wise are fettered by beauty and ache with love longing, while fools remain unmoved and free. Let no man mock another over what touches many men. Time and again wise men behave like idiots in the name of some grand passion. Each man must be his own best judge. Nothing is worse for a man who knows himself than frustrated desire. The High One cried, I learned this for myself when I sat among the reeds, waiting and waiting for my love. I prized that woman as much as my own life. Much good it did me. I first saw Billing's daughter while she slept. She was as dazzling as the sun. I thought the whole earth would become a wilderness unless I could lie with her. Come back after dark, Odin, if you want to win this woman. <laughs> That was what she said. It would be the worst for us if anyone found we were lovers. I hurried off, light-headed with desire, wholly taken in by her dulcet words. I was sure she would soon be mine, and mine, and mine again. I came back after nightfall. All the warriors in the stronghold were awake, holding burning torches, waving blazing brands. I had followed a false trail. I would not be shaken off. I came back at dawn and all the warriors were asleep. What did I find? Nothing but a bitch that the fair woman had leashed to her bed. Men should know that many a fine woman proves fickle when put to the test. I learned this when I wooed Billing's daughters with fair words. That treacherous lady responded with contempt. Foul contempt and nothing else, cried the high one. Gilfi and Gephian. You have treated me like a king, said Gilfi. The wizened beggar woman sat in her cocoon of filthy, reeking rags and listened. Our bed was only this bare ground, said Gilfi, and our roof was only this whispering tree and the litter of stars beyond. But all that you had to share, your scraps of food, your store of understanding you willingly offered. The beggar woman's eyes were deep wells, unfathomable and strangely gleaming. You have treated me like a king, Gilfi said, and now I want to tell you that I am the king. The beggar woman looked at Gilfi without changing her expression. She sniffed. As you shared with me, 
I will share with you, said Gilfi. You are welcome to as much as Sweden as you can plow with four oxen in one day and one night. Then the king and the beggar woman went their own ways. Gilfi found and followed a track out of the forest and came back to his court. The beggar woman, none other than the goddess Gefian, left Midgard and journeyed into Jotunheim. Gefian walked past cauldrons of mud and boiling springs. She worked her way around the base of a mountain and reached a secluded, fertile valley. No man lived there, but four huge oxen were grazing under the hot sun, the four sons of the goddess and the giant. Gefian took her sons with her back to Midgard and into the country of Sweden. She chose a piece of land, very fine to look at, and even better for farming, and yoked the four oxen to a massive plow. Now the coulter bit so deep that it began to loosen the crust of the earth. Now the oxen strained with every sinew and muscle and wrenched the mold away from the molten rock beneath. Gefian laughed as her four sons dragged off a great piece of land. The oxen slowly made their way westward. They reeked with sweat. The goddess urged them on, and they waded into the sea, still hauling the land behind them, until at last they stopped in the middle of a sound. Leave the land here, Gefian said. Let it lie here until the end of the world. She unyoked the oxen from the plow. Oxen with eyes like moons, not unlike their mother. And let this fertile island be known as Zealand, said the goddess. So Gefian repaid Gilfi's generosity by looting his land. That which made Denmark larger made Sweden smaller. Water oozed from the earth and fell from the sky into the gaping wound where the land had been ripped up and became a lake. Men called it Molar, and that is why the headlands of Zealand fit in the inlets and bays and the bights of Lake Molar.